Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, welcome. Thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by an internationally renowned British sociologist currently working in the United States. Professor Ben Carrington is widely regarded as one of the world's leading scholars on the sociology of race and culture, especially in relation to popular culture and sports. He's an associate professor of sociology and journalism in the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California, and a visiting research fellow in the Carnegie Lee School at Leeds Beckett University. He's published numerous articles and essays on race, culture, and politics, as well as four books, including the critically acclaimed Race, Sport, and Politics, The Sporting Black Diaspora in 2010. You can also find his op-eds in The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Huffington Post, and he's the presenter of a radio documentary on the Caribbean-born public intellectual Stuart Hall. Welcome, Professor Ben Carrington. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm happy to be uh, on, the, on the podcast. I've listened to many, so um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, it's a personal privilege to, to be here. Thank you so much. Um, so you are currently speaking to me from the UK, but you're living in the US. You've been living in the US for many years now. Um, yeah. Where's home these days? Home. Home home is a difficult concept for me. Um, I, I, I feel grounded in the UK when, when I come back to England. Um, uh, it's, it's funny, actually, when you've been away for a long period of time, um, the things that, that, that matter the things that keep you grounded. For me, actually, it's sound. Mm. Sound is a key part of my experience of in coming back. And it's things like the sound of car tires going over the particular tarmac that we have here after it's rained and the sound that that makes, the acoustic of um, the, the, the types of birds that we have here or the, the wind going through the trees and, and you know, uh, the rain hits in the, the window pane and it sounds you know, almost like a, a bad Wordsworth um, of experience. Not as much rain in Southern California. No, so, you don't, so that's part of it. So you don't get rain. And I lived in Austin, Texas before I moved to, to Los Angeles. So you get very little rain. But then when, when it does rain, you have these like downpours. Mm. Um, so you, you realise that actually that the, 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 the sounds, the soundscape, that you get used to uh, is very different in other places. So I, I kind of miss that and that, that gives you a sense of home. But um, I've been outside of the UK now for 17 years. So 
So you're yeah. probably then very well qualified at this point, um, both in terms of your academic background and your life experience to compare whiteness in the two contexts. I'm always curious, mainly because we obviously think of America, us here in the UK as, as being, you know, very similar. It's, you know, similar language. We imbibe so much of American culture. But how similar would you say whiteness is between the two contexts or are there any particular differences you'd highlight? Uh, yeah, I mean, th there are some similarities and I think so um, one of them would be the, the denial that whiteness operates and the denial of whiteness as a factor in the construction of national identities. Now, I think curiously, in parts of English and British history, that association at times was a bit more explicit. You know, if you think about in the Enoch Powell wing of the Conservative Party, um, they were very explicit that to be English was to be white and to be British was to be white, you know, and, and you know, kind of Powell's, some of Powell's famous arguments that, you know, just because a, a, a West Indian or an Indian person has a British passport, that there's not that, does not make them British. They remain West Indian or Indian still. Um, so implicit within that was this idea that constitutive of being English and or British was to be white. Mm. And that was a key part of you know, British political discourse, I'd say up, up until the 80s. You know, the, 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 the famous chant that Paul Gilroy uses, the, the, you know, the, the, great, um, the great social justice and cultural historian, Paul Gilroy, um, from his 1987 book, There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. Yes. There ain't no black in the Union Jack. Um, of course, there's lots of red and blue in the Union Jack. And actually, there's not much white in it. But the, the, the point was that, you know, that the black people, brown people, those of darker skin tones can never fully be national subjects. Mm. We still have the residue of that played out in different ways. That debate is slightly different in the US from the right. You know, so apart from the from the far right, you know, the, the overt white supremacists, the equivalent conservative right-wing politicians in the US would rarely use that type of understanding and discourse mm -hmm. um, because of this idea of the US being a melting pot and it's just a land of, um, you know, of migration and flows and that's what constitutes, you, know, you know, bring me your poor and your destitute and your huddled masses and we will, we will constitute a new society. So what that means is that the ways in which whiteness works is refracted slightly differently within the political discourse of the, of the US, but it's still absolutely there. Um, but it tends to get embedded within other tropes that are, um, you know, kind of uh, like camouflage. So if you think about Donald Trump's slogan, his famous slogan, make America great again. Um, which you know, some people kind of reframed as make America white again. Mm. There's a nostalgia for a certain period of American history in which white supremacy was ascendant and was still in control that is harked back to as the golden era, not in an overt way in which they were saying, and this was the golden era because whites were in control, blacks didn't have civil rights. You couldn't say that, but implicit within that is this idea that to be a true American, the, 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 the leading edge of all of these American identities is a white American. Mm. So, you, but you have to kind of tease that out 
um, in, in, in kind of subtle ways. And so I think that broader difference of, you know, even the conservative right will say like African-American history is part of the American story. Um, whereas British conservatives will say, well, really the, the history of Britain is the, is the history of these British Isles and we have this indigenous um, population that goes back to Anglo-Saxons and there'll be some kind of tracing of a, of a hermetically sealed white British identity that later on, at some point in around 1948, um, black people suddenly appeared, 492 of them on, on you know, in, in Tilbury Docks on the Windrush. And then we can maybe start to talk about multiculturalism and race from 48 onwards, as if the entire history before that, um, you could disentangle the British Empire from what's happening here. So I think that, that those different national myths and narratives around national identity, which are implicitly tied to whiteness, are configured slightly differently. And that has big implications then for how we talk about contemporary politics. So I really want to talk about this connection between whiteness and national identity. And I think that one of the ways we can link that to our topic for today, which is sports, um, is to talk about the Euro finals. So for those who were somehow uh, asleep throughout this period, um, England faced off and lost against Italy at Wembley, a hugely significant sporting moment for the players and the country, of course. And I'm sure for yourself as a huge football fan, um, in the lead up to the match, the players were very much presented as heroes. They were the heroes we were banking as a nation. All of our hopes were placed on them um, in the press, online. There was very little mention of race at this point, as I could recall or th that I've been able to find. But as soon it as it was announced that England had effectively lost, suddenly it was um, reported in several uh, parts of the media that three black players had failed to score. A Manchester mural of Marcus Rashford was defaced, although it was later covered with messages of support. And each of the black players who missed the penalty was bombarded with racist abuse, which was you know, condemned by the FA. Now, writing in Harper's Bazaar, Chidozi Obasi says, we were reminded on Sunday night that our cultural acceptance is very much conditional. When we're winning, we're English. When we fall short, we're back to black. What can this particular episode tell us about the connection between whiteness and national identity? Um, uh, I think it shows us that those dynamics are at play and that they haven't gone away and that they reside just beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. One of the things that sports does, perhaps more than any other cultural form, you know, more than theatre, perhaps more than music, perhaps more than plays, you know, perhaps more than art, is to tap into some deep reservoirs of emotional attachments, identities, and identifications, which can be both positive and embracing and uh, inclusive, and can also be exclusive and damaging and um, destructive. Mm -hmm. And so this is why, and I, I'm a sociologist, as you mentioned in your, your introduction, and I've, I've long studied popular culture and sports, and it's, it's just a quick segue to kind of come back to more specifically to your question. Yeah. And for a long time, when I would um, 
well, let's just do the classic thing. I, I was in I was in a cab in London, a black taxi. Um, uh, I was in a black, and also for anyone watching this in America, when we say a, a black cab or black taxi driver, it means that the cab is that the taxi itself is black, not that the person driving is black, because they very rarely, at least historically, were. Um, so if if we're in that classic situation when you're in a, a black cab and you're chatting to the to the driver. Um, before, if they ask, so, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a sociologist. And they say, well, what's that? And I try to explain it. And they say, well, what do you study? And I say, well, the, the interrelationship between sports and politics, you know, the impact of, of sports onto society and how society shapes sports. Up until recently, they would be confused that there was any relationship between sports and politics. Mm. And I would have to try to explain, well, actually, sports are about power, they're about identity, how we play sports, who pays for sports. Um, that the passions of sports invoked and after I'd, I'd given my 30 second spiel they'd finally maybe think well yeah I'm not sure that's worth studying but I can see the connection that's changed that's changed as soon as I say they, they now say cool you've got a lot to write about haven't you you've been you know, cool and then they start to talk about Marcus Rashford and the racism or they start to talk about the Olympics and why it's taking place or they talk about um you know Simone Biles or uh, Naomi Osaka and you know w w the rights of athletes not you know to have mental health issues you know that there's a whole range of things now that people get that I think is different um, than, than before those issues were always there it's just that there's been a bit of a paradigm shift you know in which um, maybe even people like yourself who would say well I, I don't really do sports you, 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 you can't be interested in racing questions of whiteness without having now to know about sports, yeah? You, know, so you can't say, well, I, I'm just a race scholar. I, I just study nationalism. I don't look at sports. Like, the, the biggest cultural event around national identity comes through sports. Mm. So I would go as far to say that you cannot talk about nationalism mm. in Britain and the West unless you understand the place of sports you cannot talk about race in Britain, race in the West, unless you understand sports. And you cannot begin to think about and understand whiteness unless you have an analysis of sports. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think that did come to the fore, and, and these dynamics have always been there. So, so this isn't a new interconnection. You know, if you go back you know, historically and you think of the formation of the British Empire. One of the um, ideas that underpinned a certain ideal of the British Empire and the colonialists was this idea of muscular Christianity, muscular Christianity. So the idea was the fusion of a religion, Christianity, with the, uh, the, the goals of the British Empire but to take that forward, good young Christian men had to be strong. They had to be athletic. You had to build the muscular body that was strong on the inside and on the, on the outside. Mm. And, you know, the, you know the, 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 the phrases like, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the plain fields of Eton is where good young muscular Christian um, imperialists were born shows a deep interconnection between these privileged schools like Harrow and Eton and the playing fields of rugby and cricket, both exporting them around the world. So one of the, you know, the uh, what, what, what some people refer to as the three C's 
of, of, of colonization. So there was the of course, Christianity, so you convert the heathens. There were the classics, so you teach them enlightenment, European ideas, and cricket. You know, so there's, you know, there, there's a reason why cricket is played in Zimbabwe, South Africa, Australia, um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Jamaica. Like you, you don't have to be a historian of the British Empire to see a deep interconnection between sports being used as a mode of of, of spreading, diffusing. And I, the ideals of a certain type of Britishness. Now, with, embedded within that, of course, is a racial hierarchy, is a racial hierarchy. And so from their codification, construction, um, and, and organization, sports were deeply involved in the imperial project, deeply involved. In the Caribbean, for example, up until the 1960s, the captain of the West Indies team had to be a white player. Mm. You think about that. So you'd have these virtually all black teams, but the captain, the, 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 the person in charge had to be white. So we will allow, we're going to teach them how to play our game, but we will be in charge. The MCC will run international cricket. Um, and so and, uh, time and time again, you see the ways in which the ideals of fair play, or even the expression, you know, that's not cricket. The expression that's not cricket implies that that's not how you should do things. It implies that cricket is inherently fair, it's righteous, um, it's English. And therefore embedded within that is the idea that it's not only English, but it's a certain type of white Englishness. Mm. So time and time again, we see in various aspects of sports, Sports being the modality in which our national identities are played out. Mm. It's, it's, the, it's the space of imagination. One of the things we often, when we talk about sports, we often focus on the physical body. Sport is an embodied cultural practice. We, the Olympics are taking place right now. And if you turn on the TV and you manage to see some of the coverage, um, you'll see spectacular uh, you will see human beings and human bodies engage in spectacular forms of expression, spinning and jumping and running and throwing in all kinds of ways in which uh, those of us um, who aren't elite athletes can only marvel at, yes? And it moves us in really kind of profound ways. But sports are also not just about the body. They're a space of fantasy. You know, I think... Um, so you have stadiums that are called like the theatre of dreams. I think, I think Old Trafford, the Man United fans um, claim that Old Trafford is the, the theatre of dreams. What a beautiful, poetic, the theatre of dreams. You go there, and you might say you go there and you hear lots of shouting and swearing and abuse. But no, it's a theatre of dreams. We imagine a possibility of something different, something other, something that hasn't yet become materialized, but offers us a glimpse of, a, of, of some type of future society or, or of a future way of being um, momentarily. Sort of goal that's scored, and that, that ecstatic moment when everyone goes up together, that, that joyous collective moment, um, which is really powerful. Now, anyone who's into sport, or even if you're not into sports, you know, sometimes when you go and watch the game, like the Euros, and you get lots of people in, suddenly, People are jumping and hugging and screaming and like 
there are very few other cultural things that move us in that kind of way. Yeah, even a good film. I've seen some good films, but at the end of it, I've never seen the audience jump up and hug each other and people are chucking coke and popcorn everywhere and say, did you see the end of that film? My God. Like, like, other cultural films don't do that. Maybe music does in a slightly different way. There's a collective to, to music. So I don't, I don't want to overstate this. But that passion is very, is very kind of powerful and can be mobilised in different ways. So to come back to, to the question about the, the years more specifically, those complex ways in which sports produces an idea and an ideal of what it means to be English is very, very powerful. Um, the three lines on the chest, three lines on the chest, that annoying David Bedell and Skinner song that's become a proxy national anthem, football's coming home, which as a, as a quick reminder, the very phrase football's coming home of course, implies that football is inherently ours, English, British. Mm. Can you think of a more colonial way of thinking about, uh, no, imagine someone saying music's coming home, <laughs> like, like we own music, like music is ours. No, so this is the idea that football is, is essentially English and we've lent it to some other foreigners, but now it's coming back home where it rightly belongs. So even that seemingly innocuous phrase indicates, highlights the ways in which a certain understanding of English and Britishness is embedded within an, an imperial logic. Sport is ours, our object that we own, and, and its rightful place. Sport is, football is only, um, the only people that can really win football are the English, because it's ours. Um, so football becomes this, modality, a vehicle for the expressions of an idealised version of Englishness. But that idealised version of Englishness is also contested. Well, what type is, of Englishness? This is what I was going to ask England. you, yeah. yeah. And, and, that's, and that's then what comes to the foreground in these moments when you have people representing the nation hmm. who may look differently to how some people imagine that their idealised version of Englishness. And that's when we see these clashes taking place precisely in and around football and precisely in and around the actions and behaviours and achievements of certain players. So in really basic terms, are we saying that part of the reason that these players are experiencing racist abuse is because there are um, so-called fans who don't think that they should be allowed to represent Englishness? Yes, to some degree, although it's so... So I would actually say they are fans. So one of the moves that have okay. been made by some people, many people, is to disentangle the good fans from the bad fans. And you'll see this by the players themselves, the football authorities, politicians, pundits, so-called fans. They're fans. Mm. They're fans as much as the other fans are. Mm. As by way of an, an analogy, and I've just made this up, so it may not work. Um, there are some Republicans who argue that those people who invaded and attacked the Capitol building on January 6th of this year were not proper Trump supporters. Okay. They were, they were some, no, they were Trump supporters. Right. They were at the same rally an hour or two before, they left that rally and went and invaded and tried to engage in an insurrection. 
Mm. If this was well, they're not there. But there's there's the true Trump fans, and then these other one. No, 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 no. They they come from the same spaces, um, have the same ideals and ideologies. It's just that they've made these other fans look bad. So one of the things I would maybe want to push back upon or yeah. get us to think about yeah. is the way in which in this moment we try to to produce these two categories: mm. the good, honest you know, never racist fan. And then a mm. small one or two of people who, who aren't really fans. I mean, they don't belong in a game. <laughs> they, sadly, they do belong in a game. They have belonged in a game. They're a part of the game. And we need to be honest about that as a way to recognise the problematic nature of some of the cultural fandom itself. So I think that's, that, that's part of it. What, um, what's happening in their, in their experience? They go from what? Celebrating the team... And, and all the, di- you know, the word diversity, which I think we could probably unpick at some point. But, you know, this whole yeah. idea that, you know, we celebrate the diversity of this team, which represents England in one minute, they're cheering and supporting them. And then the next minute, they're disassociating from them on racial yeah. lines. Yeah. So, so, so this is a good question. So in the going, going back to where we starting points of, of the power light, the Enoch Powell wing of the conservative party and the right which is much more widespread but one of the key aspects that idea of the Enoch Powell version of English identity is the idea that no matter what brown and black people can never be English okay there's a shift away from that that takes place um, in the 80s and into the 90s and it's given various labels. Sometimes it's called multiculturalism or multicultural inclusion, or you know, there, there are different ways in which we kind of frame a shift and move away from an ethnic absolutist and exclusionary notion of Englishness to one that includes difference and diversity. Uneasily, still with hierarchies, but there's a kind of uh, there's a there's a the center ground shifts, mm. and the conservatives on the right have to accommodate to that. The question is, and there's a, there's a nice, there was a really good book by um, John Solomos, Les Back and Tim Crabb that came out in 2001 that looked at um, racism in, in football. Um, and they, they have a nice phrase in that book called passports of inclusion, passports of inclusion. So, so brown and black people, and we take the example of, of football, black people were given a passport of inclusion. You're included now, but it's kind of temporary. And it's not, you know, and it's not permanent residence. It's not, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a, it's a passport of inclusion that doesn't give you the, quite the full citizenship rights as the others. There's there are a few caveats, a few asterisks, and it's basically said, well, okay, you can be included now, but you according to, to these criteria. You have to what's, be, what's that? You have to be sportingly excellent in order you have to, yeah. to be accepted. It reminds me of a quote that you'd included uh, from Lewis Hamilton in a piece you recently wrote for The Guardian when you, you quoted him saying, we must walk, work towards a society that doesn't require black players to prove their value or place in society only through victory and I've heard this you know through you know also the some of the discourse around migrants you know a migrant is a celebrated migrant when she becomes you know an Olympic swimmer um, or you know achieves some kind of incredible feat but the, the the humanity that is bestowed upon white bodies upon white individuals as a given isn't a given for 
those racialized outside of whiteness. And so I'm, I'm, I was wondering in that same op-ed, you talk about um, you, the, the idea of how, how do we do, how do we challenge this? You know, this is the, the ongoing conversation in football, right? About how do you challenge racism in sport? And we've seen, you know, give racism the red card and various campaigns with celebrities trying to, you know, stamp out racism in football. In your op-ed, you say the current calls for permanent bans and even criminal convictions in extreme cases for any fan found guilty of racism are a welcome and long overdue step. But you say we cannot ban our way out of racism. So what should be happening and why are bans ineffective in your view? I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that the bans are ineffective because I do I do say they're kind of necessary and I do agree with the push to have much greater punitive and aggressive zero tolerance for racism I think that's part of it mm. my, my concern is that becomes the focus of our anti-racist energies yes if we can only like because a banned racist fan just to take that as an example yeah. Presumably then is racist out somewhere else. Yes, they're still a racist person. Shopping in the pub, sitting next to you, driving you around in a taxi, serving you your food. So I would rather so I don't want to d- diminish that. And I don't I don't want to, this to, you know, to sound kind of too kind of like facile, but, but I would I want that person not to be racist. Right. And sometimes we think, well, if we can ban the racist from the stadium. We've, we've solved the problem. Well, no, you've just got a racist on the outside of the stadium. And yeah. so, so the question in, then is the more difficult one is why is that person racist in the first place? Mm. What is their worldview? What are the ideologies that they hold that one think that <coughs> black people aren't fully English and that it's acceptable to racially abuse them if they make a mistake? So, you know, that, that, that you, you summarize it well in that quote from Lewis Hamilton, you know, that. That, that black people's inclusion is precarious yeah. and it's predicated upon sporting excellence. So yes, if you can run fast and swim fast and kick ball and it goes in a goal, then you're included. And if you miss, then suddenly we're going to call into question your right to belong as, as a citizen. So clearly that's problematic. Mm. The, the other thing that's been discussed, and this is an important discussion, is around, say, social media yeah. and the ways in which this type of racism is amplified, is spread, um, and is given kind of like legitimacy, but also amplification and extra kind of power um, in really damaging ways. There's still, and so part of the issue is to ban people from social media or also maybe to make them not allowed people to be anonymous or you know, just to create a fake name, you know, and you have all these like, you know, Mr. Bob 76924769 making these comments with zero followers. Yeah. They're only following seven people. The, the account was created two days ago. Yeah. No, 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 you personally have had, I don't need to tell you about, you know, the levels of online abuse that that people in the public eye, especially black people, especially women, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, but there's still the prior question as to why that person holds those views. And also, I mean, I would suggest that although I do support those measures to kind of reduce online abuse, we're still trying, we're still not taking a step back to say, where is this coming from and yeah. how do we counter the underlying ideologies and worldviews that lead people to hold these positions in the first place? Because if we do that, then actually 
the worldviews that many of these people hold, and I think this is the question that many of us that we need to confront, are actually quite widely held within mainstream conservative publications. Mm. So if you, you only need to read The Spectator or The Daily Telegraph or The Sun or The Mail or to read the words of people like Doug Murray or Melanie Phillips or Wood Little and, and others to see a power-like discourse, which, for example, argues that the West is inherently a Judeo-Christian society, which is just historically and factually wrong, but that gets invoked as a way to exclude Islam and Muslims. Right. There's another kind of shift that takes place, which begins to talk about um, cultural attributes and values that are inherent to the West, and that begins implicitly to exclude, sometimes explicitly, but more often implicitly, other cultures, you know, West Indian culture and Caribbean culture and these other... So you see here, these are all, these are all people with their names published. Like, they're, 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 they are not anonymous. They are yeah. paid tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollar pounds a year with huge public platforms to espouse deeply racist, Islamophobic, nationalist rhetoric and ideas, such yeah. that they will say things like, well, either Islamophobia doesn't exist, or it's good to be Islamophobic. Like, you don't need an anonymous Twitter account. Like, so, the, so I would argue, as yeah. a slight provocation, that the bigger problem actually is not the online anonymous racist troll, although that is clearly bad, it produces harm. I don't want to undermine that or to, yeah. to underplay that. I want to make an argument that the wider ecosystem of right wing and, and, the, and the, the almost imperceptible lines between the far right white supremacist terrorists mm. who do engage in actual forms of violence and, and, the, and the acceptable forms of discourse that you'll see every week in The Spectator, every day in the Daily Telegraph, every day in the Daily Mail. And I think that's the discussion and the battle that we, need, that we, we, we also need to be focused on. Because if we're not, we end up reducing all of that wider ideological struggle to the racist hooligan mm. who isn't a fan, who abused Marcus Rashford. Because all the men Lee Phillips of the world, and the Douglas, they'll, they'll condemn that. They'll say, of course, this is terrible. Yeah. Although even some of them, like the spiked crowd, that kind of weird libertarian Marxist white supremacist group that, that go under the name of spiked, yes. they'll come back and say, well, you're just attacking the white working class now. <laughs> no, so actually, the, even in, under those circumstances, we do see that cohort saying they made two moves. One to say there wasn't much racism, you know, it was, it was exaggerated. It was only a few individuals. And actually, this is just another attack on the white working class. I would argue that ideology and that line of argument in the long run is a bigger problem than the, than the actual individual racists, you know, engaging racist abuse. Mm. Um, because that, because they, they the mainstream legitimate um, public facing um, commentators are providing the ideological cover for the specific forms of vicious racism that, that then are produced. But it's just done in different language, it's done in blunt language. Yeah. Whereas you know, the, the, the Douglas Murray's were, they've gone to Cambridge and Oxford, right. you know, these are very refined figures and they, they speak very softly and, and you know, they, they have um, uh, a kind of uh, bourgeois sensibility. 
and they get they appear on the BBC. So how can these people be part of the problem? It's that racist guy over there, you know, using that, that, that obscene language. That's part of the trick that I think we need to do on, on the anti-racist side is yes, to focus on banning racists from the internet. Yes, to have, you know, fines and exclusions from football. As we also at the same time engage in the broader ideological battle around exposing the pernicious forms of anti-black racism, Islamophobia that are deeply embedded in the very idea of Englishness and the West that these other right-wing publications espouse on a daily basis. That, that makes it so much sense to me because I always, you know, when I see um, sort of explicit racism in any given context, I always think to myself, well, anyone entering a room reads the room. And there are rooms where there are things that you just won't say, even if you're thinking them, because you've looked around the room and you've thought, if I say this, there's going to be trouble. And yet in these rooms, metaphorical rooms, you know, people feel very comfortable saying these things. They feel very supported in saying these things, which suggests, you know, very much along the lines of what you just said, that it's it's not it can't really be limited or, or curtained off to you know this little fringe group because the little fringe group is basically in some ways manifesting or, or or saying crudely they're like the kid in the room that says what a lot of other people are thinking right and so we blame the kid but actually if they if the kid understood that that's not permissible then it just wouldn't get said or you know and, and i mean I, I can compare it even to what it feels like the there's a lot of misogyny as well in that same context where, you know, being a woman, you know, post uh, victory at a football match, you know, there's there's a, there's a certain uh, type of masculinity that you find in those environments that, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. It's not just a few bad apples. It's it's part of a wider culture. And I think it's um, it would be crazy to deny that um, while we're here. How do you define whiteness? Oh, how do I define what I should have I should have prepped for that question. Given that, <laughs> yes, it's hardly past. a trick one. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, it reminds me a bit of my uh, one of my uh, great intellectual um, kind of mentors is Stuart Hall, the, the Caribbean intellectual who's who I, I think you mentioned in the introduction. I did a I did a podcast. Um, if, if you do one thing from this, go and listen to my podcast, Stuart Hall in Conversations that I did for public radio in, in America. Um, and for those that don't know that Stuart Hall was one of the one of the founders of what we now call cultural studies or the British version of cultural studies, um, a very important intellectual movement um, in, in the, in the post-Second World period. Um, and Stuart Hall always said that one of his biggest fears was that when he went to, gave, to give talks you know, at various universities and around the world, the question that he feared most was someone who said, can you can you define culture? <laughs> you know, you're the, you're the you're the originator of cultural studies. So, so what is culture? So that, that was the question that he feared most. Um, so coming on this program, that was the question I feared most that you would you know, get me to ask what, what is whiteness. Definitely um, coming. <laughs> I, I don't think whiteness is an object. Let me, let me go backwards. Let me, let me say the things I don't think whiteness is. Mm. I, I don't think whiteness is an object. I don't think it is a, a material thing. I don't think it is something that people um, even kind of like possess and hold. So sometimes when we talk in these words, we, we have to be very mindful of our language, obviously. 
and we need to be mindful of the ways in which our the language and the metaphors and the similes and the analogies that we use can sometimes open up and explain and give us insight and sometimes can do the opposite and can lead us down quite difficult terrain so um and when we think about whiteness, we obviously have to think about whiteness in relation to, as a relational identity to other racial descriptors or other racial identities. So to say what is whiteness to me is also to say what is blackness, to say what is, what does it mean um, to be Asian, to be Hispanic, etc. Very quickly, as soon as we do that, we realize we shifted our language. So we've gone from a color scheme, what is whiteness, to what is blackness, which was kind of easy. So then I shifted to say, what is Asianness or what is Hispanicness, which very quickly, you know, we're thinking about this. So, well, why don't you say, what is yellowness? Or what is brownness? Mm. Which is what, which would have been more analytically um, consistent. Right. And, and, I, and I use this in my class, I teach in America. And when I say to the students, um, uh, who are the reds? If we describe them as being red, who would be, who would be the redskins or the reds? And they say, well, that's Native American to be, you can't go around calling them the Reds or Reds. That's okay. Um, and Blacks, oh, she's Black. Okay. So we've just, we've just now reckoned, and I said, I will say to them, there was a time when you would have used the terminology of Reds or Yellow. Yellow would have been a descriptor for the Yellow Peril, for Orientals. Right. Now, if you were to refer to any of your Asian American friends as Yellow, you would expect to be kicked out of the university because you're some, you know, and so just, so just think about the terms, yeah, mm-hmm. of the ways in which the, the use of the term yellow and red probably would have been, would have been used in some contexts 50, 60 years ago and sound horrendous to the ear now. Yeah. And yet we still use white and black. Mm. And there's a moment to go, oh, yeah. So we need to be clear about the terms that we're using and what it's referring to. Mm. Yeah? And then sometimes there's a bit of a slippage there. So when we refer to what is whiteness, one of the questions is, well, what is the, what is it, what's the reference? What's, what is this term whiteness? Because it could, you know, the, the term itself in some ways doesn't really matter if referring to something else. It's, the, it's a process, process of categorization. Mm-hmm. So what we're referring to here is the process of trying to refer to a particular racial category and or group and or the expressive identities and associations and meanings given to that group. Because mm-hmm. you could argue that what is white people is slightly different from uh, the question, what is whiteness? Yeah. We just want to know what this podcast and what you're trying to, to grapple through. And, you know, and in, in, in those podcasts, that's what you're often trying to do is to see the, the extent to which white people and whiteness come together, the extent to which they're separate, yeah. the extent to which it's even meaningful to talk about white people outside of an understanding of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Now, it becomes particularly difficult because you could argue that not all of these racial categories are the same or they don't have the same power <laughs> or they're relational, but they're relational in different types of ways. So whiteness alludes to and is a entry point into thinking about the process of racial categorization, the process by which humanity is put into groups and is um, in some way separated and then a hierarchy a hierarchy that's then produced in which certain identities are predicated upon their position vis-a-vis another group 
Right. So in that sense, it becomes very hard to think about whiteness outside of a discussion around what whiteness is not. Mm. So whiteness becomes, for me, a kind of organizing principle and discourse of a racial hierarchy that privileges and puts into place and positions certain people who are described as being white as being and having power over other racial categories, other racial identities and other racial groups. But the thing itself is actually quite porous and shifting. It's not something necessarily that people like possess in a kind of physical sense. It's a relational form of power that privileges certain people and gives them opportunities vis-a-vis other people's in a racialized hierarchy. And, and, And that can shift, it can shift over time, it can, it can, who's included and excluded can shift, but right. there's a kind of a, a power, if you like, that resides around whiteness that, and again, this is where a language um, kind of, uh, kind of um, falls short, but it kind of casts a shadow mm. over those other racial categories. And it's particularly tricky precisely because whiteness is a form of identity that denies its own existence. It's right. a form of power that denies that it is a form of power. And that's why when we have these discussions around whiteness, it's difficult to kind of grasp and and to kind of get our heads around because we're so used to talking about, say, the black community, you know, or the the, the Asian community, you know, or or, or black leaders with these kind of like subsets, almost kind of like tribes of the racialized. And then there's this kind of normative, unmarked, space of whiteness which is often like the terrain upon which these other racial identities are, are being produced hmm. and, I, and I wanted to ask you about sort of the some of the symbolic um, forms of resistance that we've seen to whiteness and I know obviously uh, when Colin Kaepernick took the knee in America initially it was you know to, to mark police brutality to kind of make a point about police brutality but it I, I wonder do you see things like taking the knee, which have now, you know, gone from America and to other parts of the world? We've seen players in the UK taking the knee, um, you know, very much despite the, the government's response to that. Um, firstly, is that a symbolic form of resistance to whiteness? And do you see continuity between that and the sort of raising of the black power fist as we might have seen in the Olympics in previous eras? Yeah, this is a good question. I I guess to be analytically precise, I don't see what that those, so so yes, they are symbolic forms of resistance. They're symbolic anti-racist gestures. I don't necessarily see them as being a resistance or a challenge to whiteness per se. Mm -hmm. I see them being a challenge to anti-black racism and the extent to which whiteness associates itself with with, with forms of anti-black racism, then yes, it's a challenge to whiteness. It's only a challenge to a certain type of whiteness that's predicated upon an idea of superiority, of denigration of of non-white populations, And then understanding that blackness is abject. Yeah. So, so, so the, 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 the particular pushback is actually to challenge racial discourse and anti-black racism in particular. And, and the underpinning of that is a form of white supremacy. 
And a part of that may well be the investment in a certain ideal of whiteness that many people have. But, you know, so, so kind of that, yes, but, or but only yeah. indirectly. But do you, does that suggest that you think that there's a form of whiteness that can exist independently of anti-black racism? Because my understanding, which obviously is just mine, and I, you know, there are, on the podcast, we've had many different conversations around even the meaning of whiteness, but is that whiteness itself, by virtue of the hierarchies that it stands upon, is inherently implicated in anti-blackness, anti-brownness, anti-anything excluded from itself. Yeah, yeah, so, yes. So I think ultimately you could argue that a successful anti-racism probably ends up dissolving all racial identities. Mm. So I mean, so there's, to make a comparison, so there's, there's a long-standing debate within feminist theory, radical feminist politics, around a, a central tension, which is, would the dismantling of patriarchy and the reimagining of gendered identities and the undoing of gender lead to a genderless world? Or is the goal of feminism to challenge patriarchy, but only in as much as the values given to our current gendered identities are not placed in hierarchical relationship? Yeah, big, getting, big question. Yeah, and some of the, the so-called trans debate yeah. I think is actually beneath the surface is a longest running unresolved tension yeah. as to whether or not we want ultimately to be seen as human beings and our gendered identities, which may exist, but they would have no more significance than I'm five foot five, you're five foot eight. I have brown eyes, you have blue eyes. I have dark hair, you have light hair. Yeah, they're noticeable and we play with them a bit. Yeah. No one's organizing our societies in fundamental ways. Like we're not, we're, we're not going to the, to go back to trans debate. We're not going to, when I go to the toilet, there's not like five foot five and above and five foot five and below. And we, we all go to the toilet depending on our height, yes? Right. For the most part, we do not organize our societies in fundamental ways around height or eye color, but we do around gender. Mm. So there's a longstanding debate around, do we move towards a genderless or, or, or either genderless <laughs> or if not, wait, this maybe not genderless, but gen genders may still exist, but we might have more of them and their significance would simply be a, a, an aspect of choice. Mm. And, and we would not organize societies in any meaningful way, the ways we do now. Whereas others will say, no, we, we still want to hold on to gender identity. In fact, I want to make a claim as a woman as right. being a key part of who I am. And I'm going to hold on to the category of the woman and actually defend the category of the woman and even maybe police and and decide who comes into that category as part of my feminism. Mm. That's a big tension there. So yeah. similarly, to come back to, to, the, to, the, to the question, there are yeah. forms of anti-racist politics which say that ultimately all racial identities would become meaningless, yes? That we would, we would revel in our individuality or our collective identities, but you know, our, the color of our skin would be no more significant than whether or not you support Liverpool or Man United, right. or whether or not you like reggae music or classical. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a choice, it's a part of who you are, 
but we don't, we wouldn't organize societies in those same ways. Under those circumstances, not only whiteness wouldn't matter, but blackness wouldn't matter. Like all of these racial categories wouldn't yeah. matter. Now, going back to my earlier point, some would say, well, but whiteness is not the same as these other categories, yes? Yes. That it's that to say that no, to be a woman is the same. Like uh, that there are, given that we've already acknowledged there are hierarchies at play and power at play. Like, and given that many of these other identities have been formed in relation to whiteness as a position of power and can be seen as resistant identities, political identities, identities that are imbued with kind of anti-racist sensibilities that to say, to make that kind of flat equivalence is to be, um, is, is to dehistoricize mm. the extent to which whiteness was predicate, wasn't just one identity amongst many others. Mm. It was a positionality and a form of power that inflicted damage and violence and discrimination upon others. And therefore any claim of whiteness is not the same as claiming blackness or any claim of whiteness is not the same as claiming you know, an Asian identity. That there'll be like a deeply, dehistorical, ahistorical uh, account that doesn't take into recognition that actually the, 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 the necessity for whiteness to be abolished, or whiteness to be the, 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 the target to be kind of deconstructed. Mm-hmm. And only under those circumstances might we then have a broader discussion around, you know, um, uh, racial identities, you no know, falling away. And some would say, well, I, 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 quite, I quite like having an, an idea of like black culture or black music yeah. you know, or or fashion that's kind of linked to not necessarily an essentialized idea of race but yeah. some kind of like more ethnic and cultural understanding of a history and a people and the kind of move to abolish all racial identities would in a sense strip communities who've relied upon their racial identities as a form of resistance and as the basis for anti-racism like that would just be like a kind of um, a, a stripping away of the kind of cultural scaffolding that's been necessary to survive racism in the first place. Yeah. I just want to have a, want to have a quick thing though, just to add into that. But we yeah. could imagine, that's one part of the other part of the argument could be you know, to think about people who identify as white anti-racist or their whiteness is grounded in some degree in a recognition of those racial hierarchies, but they engage in forms of anti-racism, which doesn't try to necessarily dissolve or disband their white identities, but is a critique of it and try to show solidarity with others. Mm. And I'm thinking here about now what constitutes effective anti-racism and the place of white anti-racists. Right. Because we can clearly see examples of people, as we've been discussing, who identify as white, hold on to a certain idea of whiteness, often implicitly embedded within an idea of Englishness or white American identity, who engage in racist behavior linked to that. But we also have other examples. So going back, you mentioned the Marcus Rashford mural up in Manchester that was defaced. Well, if you looked at who came out to protest and to put up signs and hearts and to repaint, it wasn't just the black Manchester community. No. It was white working class people. It was Asian working class people. It was a it was a collective response from the multiracial working class communities, you know, and especially in England, and especially in places like Liverpool, or Manchester. Like you know, the, the like you go to these spaces and you see mixed race couples, mm-hmm. so called mixed race. You see 
I, me and my friends joke about here in Leeds in Chapel Town. There's a kind of there's a Le there's a Chapel Town brown, which is this kind of you can't quite tell if it's young white girls who have got makeup in a certain kind of way. If it's a mixed race, second, third generation mixed race kid, there's a there's a, there's a skin tone that, mm. that isn't clearly explicitly white and is lighter than dark black. Um, that shows generations of intercultural, interfamily mixture and understanding. And it's those same communities that came out and said, you know what, this is a disgrace. Marcus Rashford is one of us and we're going to stand against that. So you could begin to think about those communities as, as articulating a form of white anti-racist identity. Mm. And now the extent to which they put the emphasis on their whiteness as opposed to their anti-racism, that could be discussed. Yeah. But there is a long-standing tradition of, as we see in many other areas, of white anti-racist activism, ideals and action that stood in solidarity and fought against other white racists and I'm also I'm also interested in trying to kind of tease that out as well so that we we begin to understand because then that provides a form of identification for young white people to think you know what I want I I, I recognize and understand the whiteness and white identity that I have and the privilege that I have but I also want to actively engage in anti-racism and then to have a tradition and, 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 a, and a culture in which I understand okay this, this is what this is what my white anti-racists have done that we stand against racism Mm. So the tradition would be within uh, the, the tradition of white identity in that sense would be the tradition of anti-racist white identity as opposed to uh, a, 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 an equation we might make between black identity and white identity. And, and the reason I, I'm kind of trying to spell it out is because I've always felt sort of that white identity uh, for me feels very much like something that has to be recognized as part of the construct in which I exist. It's something that is present in my, uh, whether I like it or not in terms of how I exist in the world, but in terms of how I identify first and foremost, there is nothing within that identity that I see value in, which is not the same as, seeing, as saying I don't see value in parts of my European identity, my French identity and my Irish identity. These are identities that have cultural aspects that I value and, and take pride in. But white identity for me is always just, has always just meant a, a form of, of racially imbued and racially hierarchical identity that I feel only the requirement to understand and seek to challenge in myself and in the world rather than seek to find a new way of existing within does that make sense yeah yeah and i agree and i and I, I'm, I'm just thinking this through and i wouldn't i wouldn't want white anti-racism to be an identity that people aspire to in other words so i, I want to be clear that i'm not just saying you know, like because I, I do ultimately come closer to the kind of abolitionist dissolving of racial identities because they are ridiculous categories, mm. but they're still meaningful, they're still yeah. powerful, and they can be enriched in various ways. So I, I would say it's more the idea, as you, as you alluded to, that you recognize what whiteness is, the privileges, the power that it has, and you see it as a, as a, as a position, of, as a location of power, or a location from which power is produced or a location right. where power resides. And having recognized that, you then use it and you use it for anti-racist means. Mm. And you do that on the basis of solidarity 
on the basis of this is the morally right thing to do and a kind of humanistic understanding of the world you would like to have. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a tricky balance. So I, what I'm trying to su suggest is that, you know, not that we should have, you know, because the danger would be then you would recenter whiteness, you know, like, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, and the, the white savior complex, yeah, you know, like, you know, so kids and I'm, I'm going to be the white anti-racist who comes and saves the black people. No, you, you identify and understand your whiteness and you're going to use because, of, and this will be the same for men challenging um, sexism, right. straight people challenging homophobia, the places where that type of normalized everyday whiteness, going back to our early conversation, the racist, the racist fan that gets banned from yeah. the ground yeah. is still in the pub. Right. He's still, he's still in the office and he's still around your house watching EastEnders or whatever, Coronation Street, <laughs> they're still going. Um, in that moment, there's a good chance that when that person articulates that racism, they're sitting next to another white person, yeah? It's more likely the case. So, so I want those white people in those spaces to use, to recognize that that is a white space. Yeah. And that guy is articulating that because of a certain comfort level that they have. Mm. And, then to, and then to have an identification with a certain types of politics. I mean, you know what, this is how I'm gonna identify myself as a white anti-racist. Mm. And that whiteness over time, hopefully will become less and less meaningful, but not, but the emphasis is on, on the anti-racism, not on the whiteness part of that white anti-racist coupling. Yeah, makes sense. Um, before we go to the quick fire round, I did want to talk to you because we touched uh, briefly on gender, uh, but I, I would like to talk about uh, Casa Semenya, uh, who was a South African middle distance runner, winner of two Olympic gold medals, three world championships of the women's 800 meters, whose gender identity was headline news, um, who was subjected to um, huge amounts of very intrusive testing, hormone regulation, uh, which ultimately resulted in her being banned uh, from competition. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, reading around this, there were articles that were referring to, um, I'm sure you might know, Sarah Bartman, who is most commonly known by the very derogatory nickname, the Hotento Venus. Um, which was, uh, you know, the name that was given to uh, this poor lady who was captured and enslaved um, and was brought to Europe as part of an exhibition in 1810. And the idea that there were um, uh, sort of tropes around the black female body that were, that date back at least to uh, that period, if not earlier, um, which continue to impact on how black female bodies in sports are being assessed. And I was wondering whether you, uh, you know, I'm thinking you just have to look at the headlines that some of, you know, Serena Williams, like some of the depictions that we've seen of her. Um, do we continue to carry as a culture the weight of a uh, normativity of white bodies within sports, which is impeding black female athletes? Is that part of the whiteness in sport? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So there's, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, as you were yeah. speaking about, she went for Cassis and I've always, I've always used the phrase or pronounced it as the, the hot and top Venus, but I will defer to you because- No, 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 you probably know better, yeah. But well, yeah, but you're, your, your French linguistic skills are much, much better than, than mine. So I'll, I'll go and, and check that. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, just to unpack some of that, no, yeah, it's, it's a great question. So 
if you, uh, as you mentioned, Serena uh, Williams, there was, you may remember there was a cartoon that was uh, done a few years ago, I think by an Australian cartoonist. Yes, um, it was in the Herald, I believe. The, uh, the, yeah. Was it the New Zealand Herald? It might have been. Um, it and it was a oh, very yeah. caricatured picture of her, you know, with, yeah. um, you know, I think they had given her sort of a big, a big afro, the lips were very exaggerated. I mean, it was a very clearly racist depiction. Yeah, a, a very racist depiction, which was then defended, to come back to our earlier point, by the likes of Rod Liddle in right. The Spectator, who then said, who, who, who said, you can't draw Serena Williams without it looking like a racist caricature. And then said, I tried to draw her a few times and they all, she always has big lips. Imagine a commentator saying, you can't draw the Jews without using a big hook. I mean, it's, it's not nice, but let's be honest, all but the yeah. Jews, they all do look, you know, you can't draw a Jew without them looking. Oh my God. Imagine the reaction in the British press, rightly so. Yeah, of course. A mainstream commentator saying that he cannot draw. And in fact, he tried to practice drawing some of the Jews. It turns out they all do look a bit Jewish. Wow. So just. We've seen that with Muslims, think, though, the hook, the hook nose Arabs. Yeah. But yes, no, yeah. I completely take your point. Yeah. So, so this is embedded. This is deeply embedded. So it wasn't, it's not so, so. And so the, I think black female athletes, have a particularly difficult positionality for a number of reasons. One is that sports have historically been understood to be a male preserve. Sports are the space where men historically carved out a space within civil society separate from the feminine. As we see during the 20th century with the women's rights movements and the, and the, and the, and the uh, achievements of feminism, women break down barriers into the legal system, into medicine, into law, into publishing and writing, in journalism, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, but sport is the space that men can hold on to most strongly. And it's a way to avoid the feminization of society. It's a way to avoid and to push back against the, uh, the inability to legally exclude women from other spaces because it's, there's an inherent contradiction between equality, the myths of liberal democracy, and saying that women shouldn't be doctors. So you kind of have men, and there were, there were informal mechanisms to keep men at the top. So I want to be very clear, obviously. So if you look at these institutions, you still see there, there are forms of discrimination, the glass ceiling, et cetera, et cetera. But sports is a male preserve in which it's one of the few uh, socially accepted spaces for gender segregation. You know, if and then it's interesting when we sometimes look at religion and certain types of religions where there's gender segregation, we say, well, that's terrible. You know, a modern secular liberal democracies, we don't gender segregate. Well, we still kind of do, you know, in a whole bunch of areas. Um, so sports is one of those spaces where there's, there's, there's not only is there gender segregation, but it's actually enforced and celebrated for, for various reasons. And so what, what, one of the arguments is that, that, that men have allowed women into sports, but only their own sports. And they're not gonna be as, as valued as men's sports. We can still hold on to our sports. So yeah, there's, there's women's football, but we're gonna put all the money into men's football. Yeah, there's women's cricket, but we're gonna fund men's cricket. We're gonna allow women to kind of run around and do their stuff, but it's gonna get, it's gonna get three to 5% of the coverage and 95 to 97% of the coverage will be on men's sports. So we can, we can proclaim a kind of 
equal access to sports with a system that's incredibly hierarchical. But also sports, as we've been discussing, are racialized spaces. They're not just a male preserve. We could begin to think about sports from the 19th century through the 20th century as a white male preserve. So if you're a black woman coming into this space, not only do you have to kind of fight against this idea that you shouldn't be there as a woman, you also have to deal with the racialized logics and discourses that will end up caricaturing you as Rod Liddell and the other racist cartoonists did as you know, an oversized mammy with all the hair, et cetera, et cetera. They're the kind of the grotesque forms of anti-black racism that position blackness as abject and you know, a threat to the beautification of the white world. Mm. This poses an issue in particular when we come to elite athletes and their performances. And I think especially when women's performances begin to come close to those of men. Because within a hierarchical situation in which women are given a, a place within sports, but a, a secondary status, as long as they stay in that space, you're fine. I actually think that <clears throat> although the discussions around protecting the category of women's sports for women is the kind of public, um, is, is, the, is, the, is the arguments made in public, I actually think that the fears around athletes like Castor Semenya, we need to be very clear about distinguishing trans athletes from those who have, who have high levels of testosterone. They're two separate discussions, they tend to get kind of Push together so yeah there, there are those who are born with a certain biological sex who want to transition into another sex and there's procedures for that and that's that's a that's a whole complex discussion there's been no discussion around Castor Semenya's gender she's no. a woman yeah. she's identified as a woman she's always been a woman yeah. so so in so with the Castor Semenya example that, that you're talking about the question is how is she allowed to be a woman and part of it is fascinating when you look at so what so what the athletic authorities have decided is that for those women like Castor Semenya, and again, there, there's a part of this is the intrusion of very personal medical information that becomes publicly discussed. Yeah. So we should be kind of like mindful, at least aware that we're, we're now discussing the medical condition of another human being who I've never met. Yeah. I've never seen her medical records, but her medical records have been leaked. So one of the arguments is there were some women athletes and Castor Semenya seemed to be one of them whose body naturally produces high levels of testosterone. Right. And they're above the average levels that most women have. Yeah. Again, to be clear, testosterone is not a male hormone. No. Women have testosterone naturally occurring in their body. Mm. So do men. On average, men tend to have more, but there's an overlap. And estrogen is found. Like these, these are hormones that we all have. The levels vary and it's and the function of these of these hormones change for us depending on our age and what, what we're doing but what we're saying in the example of Castor Semenya and, and some, some other female athletes men of whom actually tend to be um, black women as well you know um, women of color from from the from the so-called global south is that their levels are high and they also have tend to be uh, they're, they're great athletes and many of them are beating many of these these nice blonde white western European women and therefore that's a problem so these women have had to have surgery to artificially reduce their testosterone levels. And also sometimes they'll be given um, like hormone therapy to artificially reduce their naturally occurring testosterone levels 
to an arbitrary figure that we've decided is the maximum we're going to allow for women. Now, the question might be, well, Where did well the what about the men? What, what's, what's, what's the, if, and we, again, to be very clear here, we're not talking about someone who takes a performance enhancing drug into their body and artificially boosts testosterone. That's, that's illegal. Yes. That's not allowed. Yes. That's a separate category. No one has ever suggested that Casas and many of these other athletes has tried to artificially introduce testosterone into their bodies. It's naturally occurring. Well, then the question would be, well, what's the limit for men? There isn't one. Right. <laughs> like, uh, if, if a man, for various reasons, has produces more testosterone than the average man or even the average elite athlete, mm. lucky them. They're yeah. going to, if, they, if that helps their performance. So I think this is a good example, actually, of how our our social categories and social expectations as, as to what constitutes a woman begin to define. And, and in this instance, I would say actually limit yeah. what it means. And the argument is what we're doing is to protect the other women because it's unfair for Castasimene and others to have high levels of testosterone. If that means they can run faster or swim further or faster than the other women. I actually think the bigger fear is that suppose Castasimene and these other women begin to compete against the men and run faster than them. Oh, yeah, I actually, actually think that part of the, the logic isn't protecting these other women from these super fast women. It's protecting men from the fear of actually being uh, secondary to female athletes. Mm. Okay, so, and, and just to be clear, that, so the, the standards that have been set by the sporting institutions, these like arbitrary, presumably standards of how much testosterone or estrogen a female athlete is allowed to have, have been set according to what, standards have they you know do do we study these levels across women all across the world are there regional variations i mean how does this how does it how do we define what is normal within that it's a great question i i'd, I'd really encourage your listeners and viewers to read the book by uh the work of uh, katrina carcasis mm-hmm. so katrina carcasis and with uh, another colleague of hers has wrote a book on testosterone um uh, and has, has looked at, so, so part of this is based on science. So the argument is that with the scientific studies and so the, 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 the athletic associations and authorities have tried to introduce these categories and these measurements based on the available science. And one of the things that Katrina Carcases and others have pointed out is that because of patriarchy and the sexist nature of sports science, nearly all of these studies are based on men. In other words, you have male sports scientists studying male athletes and then trying to make extrapolations to women. Wow. So the amount of available evidence for how testosterone affects women is limited. The amount mm-hmm. of the available evidence for studying large enough groups of female elite athletes is, is, is actually, there's not a lot of evidence there. Now in recent years, in order to, to justify these, uh, these, these restrictions and regulations, there has been more research done. And so they've been, they've been trying to show that actually these regulations and stipulations are scientifically based, but there's a big dispute about, you know, the interpretation of the science and even some people who are broadly sympathetic to the idea that we should have fixed categories and those categories should have requirements placed upon them. Even some of those scientists have said the available evidence isn't there yet to, to have you know, the, the levels drawn in a way in which they have done. So this is, Mm. hugely disputed on the scientific grounds 
right. and invariably what is claimed to be a purely scientific judgment is overladen with lot these social assumptions about what constitutes a proper man and a proper woman. So scientists sometimes invoke as the objective measure that we just look at the data and we look at the evidence, but behind that are normative assumptions about what constitutes a man and a woman that therefore kind of shape the data and shape the research you know and shape the evidence in in, in the first place it's, yeah it's, it's a very complex situation and many of those scientists and many of those advocating for these types of regulations have a very poor understanding of racism very rarely understand the wider context in which it's disproportionately you know, women of colour from the global south who are being positioned in this way and not other athletes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. We're going to move to our quick fire round now. So the way it works, quick question with ideally a very quick answer. Um, you're going to love this first one. Your very quick definition of whiteness. Uh, a, a, a relation of power that privileges those socialised into the category of whiteness. What is the root of racism? Uh, a, a fear of otherness that's linked to power hierarchies within society. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I think we get glimpses of a post-racial world all the time, but they're temporary. Um, so to go back to our example that we've been talking about today, um, I think in that moment when a black footballer scores a goal and fans of various races and classes and genders and sexuality celebrate in joyous union, that's a post-racial moment. That's a glimpse of a, of a society in which the significance of the colour of the skin of the person who took the penalty didn't matter. And we love the player, we love the team, we love each other, we come together. And then it evaporates by the time we then kick off. So, so yes, I actually think we do have those glimpses. And yes, I do think it's something that, I, as I said earlier, I do believe that ultimately the pernicious lie of race is not something we should hold on to. Um, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper universal humanistic bond that we have that ultimately would make these ideas of um who we are being linked to the to the amount of melanin that i have in my skin to be a ridiculous idea to organize society around mm. i've got a sports specific one for you um many people um say well some ethnicities are just better at some sports than others is it true that some that black people are better at long distance running and white people are better at swimming or is that just a racist trope uh, it's certainly true that Californians are better at surfing than people from um, Newcastle. And it's certainly true that um, kids that have gone to Eton and Harrow are better at playing polo and croquet than kids that went to uh, working class uh, comprehensive that I went to. Um, so yeah, we do find differences, but they're linked to the opportunities that we have, the culture that we come from, um, and the resources that we have. So we, if you were, if we were to look at the Olympics right now, lots of different countries are doing good at lots of different sports due to their cultural heritage, not to do with their biology of race. And the biggest determinant of winning medals is money. If you did a comparison of GDP 
to medals won is almost a one-to-one. -one. There are a couple of you know, uh, examples where that doesn't hold, but um, um, money, not genes, is the key determinant as to how good you are at certain schools. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Oh, it's, it's pivotal. You, 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 uh, it's, it's absolutely necessary. The, you can't have a conversation around race and anti-racism without understanding whiteness, just as we couldn't have a, a meaningful conversation around dealing with feminism and patriarchy without a you know, understanding of something like hegemonic masculinity. So essential. Thank you so much, Professor Carrington, for your time. Um, if people want to connect with you, your work, your books, is there a particular site that you might want to relate to people? Sure. Um, I work at the University of Southern California. So if you um, go to USC's website, um, I also have my own website, um, bencarrington.com, which is in the process of being uh, revamped. So I'd say at the end of the year, go to bencarrington.com. And for now, uh, I, I don't do much social media, but I do do Twitter. Um, which I think is uh, uh, the work of the devil, but we, we dance with the devil right now. So at Ben H. Carrington, I'm, I'm, I'm online. Um, and yeah, if you go to my work email, my work um, website at USC, then you can, you can email me as well. So um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, Professor Ben Carrington, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.